You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Death as Metamorphosis of Life. This is Lecture 4, entitled Signs of the Times, East, West, and Central Europe, given in Ulm, April 30th, 1918. My dear friends, we're gathered here to celebrate the establishment of the Ulm branch of our Anthroposophical Society. Our friends here in Ulm began meeting some time ago to pursue the endeavors and impulses of our spiritual movement in their city, and today many of us have come from out of town in honor of this event. Our friends have joined forces together in difficult times, in hard times that speak to us in significant signs. And so today we will also be mindful of the larger context, the spiritual context of human development, in which our spiritual science must find its place now and in the future. Let us turn our mind, then, from our immediate spiritual interests to the all-encompassing events with which our movement is closely connected. As we know, when we join forces In the name of our spiritual impulses, our heart and soul must be imbued with the feeling that no other spiritual movement of our time can give us what we seek, what we must seek for our soul now and in the near future, if we want to become fully aware of what it means to be human. Our seeking in this spiritual movement has many opponents who believe they must protect the true treasures of human development from what they consider an aberration of the human spirit, namely from our movement. In particular, many religious or seemingly religious people feel that our movement takes people away from immersing themselves in religion. In response, we could ask whether the representatives of Christianity in the last few centuries have been able to lead humanity to a point at which the current terrible catastrophe would have been, if not prevented, at least mitigated. Admittedly, this is a rather facile judgment, but it applies nonetheless. Of course, Christianity has not been able to achieve anything like that. But people who don't want to learn from events also don't learn anything from the fact that religion, as they understand it, has spread for centuries, indeed even millennia, and yet the current catastrophe has descended upon the whole world. Obvious though the above question is, let us now turn our mind in a different direction and ask a different question, one that is often neglected even though it is connected with very deep concerns of our time. For instance, What is the word of which contemporary scholars and philologists still don't know the origin and derivation? 
What is the word for which you will find no definition or etymology in even the most learned reference, reference works? This word, which we are looking for in vain in the usual scholarly sources, is the word God. None of the sciences can tell us anything about the linguistic and spiritual origins of this word. This is very peculiar, and not just a matter of outer knowledge, of factual information. Rather, it is a sign of something connected on the deepest level to our mind and soul. People think they are saying something meaningful when they speak about the divine, about their devotion to God. However, even with all the resources of modern scholarship, they have not been able to explain the origin and derivation of the word God. This shows that despite all their talk about religion and spirit, most people really don't know what they are talking about. It is essential that we look more closely at what it means to say that people don't know what they are talking about precisely when they think they are talking about what is most intimately connected with the innermost striving of the human soul. Those who have a sense for this, even if only a vague and not fully conscious one, are the ones who, amidst the spiritual confusion of our present time, feel drawn to the spiritual impulses of our movement. These impulses of anthroposophical spiritual science as I have repeatedly emphasized, while the current devastating tempest was brewing, are closely related to the most urgent needs of our time. In particular, I want to remind you of what I have often said and what those of you who have been with our society for several years have already heard, namely that over the course of the last three or four centuries, the earth's various nations and peoples have become one in terms of commerce, industry, banking, and so on. Modern means of mass transportation ultimately have made globalization of the economy and uniformity of physical earthly life possible. For example, a check written in New York can be cashed in Tokyo or Berlin or anywhere else in the world. When I have talked about this in the years before the war, I have always added that our human body is not the only one that needs a soul. Everybody must have a soul and cannot live without one. The economic and industrial life that has spread like a physical body all over the globe also needs a soul, one that will allow us to understand each other spiritually as well as we do economically and financially. Thus, as I have often stressed, we must strive to give the earth body an earth soul. This does not mean overnight, but takes time, and I don't mean to criticize our time just to describe it, so as to kindle in your soul impulses of action, thinking, feeling, and willing. I don't want to assign blame, but to point out what, what needs to happen. Thus I am not blaming anyone by stating that, as this shared earth body was developing so intensely in the past few decades, people have failed to develop a shared earth soul for it. There cannot be such an earth soul 
unless we all understand that just as everyone shares in the light of the sun, so we have something in common that unites us spiritually, and bringing this realization and understanding to people everywhere is the mission of anthroposophical spiritual science. So far we have not succeeded in this. Our current catastrophic times show in terrifying detail, as never before in recorded history, that humanity has come to a dead end. To get out of this impasse, we must get serious about adding a true spiritual culture to the physical one we're all so proud of. The culture of the earth soul is vital for our times and for the near future, and must go hand in hand with our physical culture. People may try to resist these efforts to give earth a new spirituality, but the truth will reveal itself no matter what. We are now living in the midst of a terrible catastrophe, and if we cannot adopt this new spirituality, such catastrophes will descend upon us again and again, perhaps at shorter and shorter intervals. This catastrophe and its consequences cannot be healed with the means already available to us before this war. To believe otherwise is to ignore humanity's development on earth. Quite the contrary. The catastrophes will continue, albeit perhaps interrupted by a few years of relative tranquility, until we begin to interpret them in the only right way, that is, as signs calling us to turn toward the spirit, the spirit that must permeate our physical life. As harsh and difficult as this may seem, it is nevertheless the truth. During the past three or four centuries of intensely proliferating materialistic culture, our connection to the spiritual world was essentially maintained by only one fact of serious significance for humanity, as those familiar with these things can attest. For instance, one of the leading representatives of the useless Society for Ethical Culture told me he thought long and hard about how churches still manage to exist in our enlightened times when people know that their salvation lies in understanding the material world. He couldn't understand why we still have churches in addition to nations. The answer he came up with, which he held to be the expression of a deep secret, was that while nations deal with life, churches handle death, and since people still adhere to the belief that death is terrible, the church's power is based on managing death. This is a very materialistic way of thinking, and claims that once people break the habit of considering death a significant intervention in human life, and begin accepting it the way animals do, then the churches would lose their power. Of course, this is nonsense, albeit brilliant nonsense. However, from the perspective of spiritual science, we can see a grain of truth in it, and in our time people sometimes have to talk nonsense to express their understanding of their spiritual nature. Future generations will consider this one of the peculiarly outstanding features of our time, and will describe the years from the late 19th to the early 20th century, our age, as one in which the most brilliant minds had to talk nonsense 
if they wanted to characterize their time. However, even in nonsense there is a grain of truth. In this case, it is that indeed many people are connected to the spiritual world only through their fear of death or through their dread of the notion that their loved ones who have passed away are in a sort of nothing, a void. We should not deny that these thoughts are still meaningful enough and are still connected with the most profound concerns of our soul. But neither fear nor any other feeling about death can by itself truly connect us to the spiritual world. Such a connection requires true insight into and understanding of the spiritual world. And we cannot achieve this unless we add to our natural scientific orientation a spiritual scientific one. We have to wonder what people are doing when they talk about the divine, about the need for this or that religious worship, when they claim to be so religious, and when they pray and worship the highest being, all without knowing anything about the origins of the word God. It is indeed not irrelevant to ponder this question in a moment of serious reflection, for it implies asking who this God is that those claiming to be religious talk about. Generally, people dismiss the teachings of spiritual science about the higher beings above us, namely the angels, archangels, archai, and others. They don't want to accept this hierarchy of spiritual beings and the great distance to the highest divine being. People don't want to muster the humility to see themselves at such a low level in the overall hierarchical context. As many have said, people don't want any, inter any intermediaries between themselves and God, but want to address God directly. However, it doesn't matter what we think about communing with God. What matters is solely what we are actually doing and experiencing in our soul. For example, what preachers of whatever religious denomination say these days about the divine applies, regardless of their actual words, in reality only to the preacher's guardian angel and not to any higher being. Of course, such a guardian angel watches over each of us throughout our life, and these preachers thus are worshipping their guardian angel, but calling it by the name of the highest God. If we know what can really be contained in words, we'll see clearly that everything modern preachers say about God can never apply to any being higher than an angel, or if not to an angel, then to another entity. Let's look at where the feelings come from that people have when they talk and preach about God, or even claim to have had a direct experience of God in their soul. These days many people report such experiences and then, with a certain arrogance, call themselves evangelized or born again. The sole impulse at the root of all this is their awareness of their own spiritual being as it has developed in the purely spiritual realm between their previous death and their rebirth into this life, a spiritual being now living in their body. 
indeed much of what we now meet with in our life, comes originally from this inner spiritual being that developed before birth, and that we now experience as a spiritual being we are at one with. People think that feeling themselves united, at one, with God is important, and even some so-called theosophists have repeatedly told people, in part to butter them up spiritually, that what matters is for people to become one inwardly with their God. Quite the contrary. What people feel when they supposedly become one with their God is only themselves, their own spiritual and soul nature as it has developed between the previous death and rebirth into this life. Thus what pastors and priests you really refer to when they talk about the God they feel in their soul is really nothing other than their own I, capital, which they perceive not as it now is here in the physical world, in our physical body, but as it has developed in the spiritual world before birth. That is what they become aware of. And then they begin to pray, and essentially pray to themselves. Indeed, it is heartbreaking to see what is happening in so many spiritual movements of our time, especially when we have to admit that people, largely without knowing it, had begun to pray and to worship themselves. Only rarely do people realize what's going on, and those who do often express their insight in very strange ways. Friedrich Nietzsche exemplifies this very well. Ultimately, people who refuse to accept the existence of the spiritual hierarchies in all their vastness and magnificence end up praying merely to their angel or to themselves, both of which are really forms of egotistical worship. We see here the spiritual egotism humanity has gradually come to under the influence of modern materialism. You may want to object here that all this is not true, that people never speak of praying to their angel or to themselves. True, they never say so, but they do it nevertheless. The words they say are primarily intended to distract and numb themselves so they don't have to face what is really going on, which is nonetheless real, whether they are aware of it or not. In fact, the chief purpose of so much that people are saying these days is to numb and stupefy everyone because people don't want to admit to themselves what is happening. At the root of this is that many people find doing the inner work to reach spiritual worlds too inconvenient, and so they don't want to do it. Instead, they want to advance to the spiritual worlds by a much easier route than is possible, and as a result they delude and numb themselves. However, numbing oneself has consequences. We can't get away with it. The world runs its course, and the divine spiritual is at work in it, whether people realize it or not. Indeed, the most profound task of our time is to recover the connection to the true spiritual realm and to rid ourselves of the spiritual egotism I've described, to overcome it once and for all. We will be resolved in our hearts to accomplish this 
once we've really understood the true and profound impulse of spiritual science. As I have already pointed out earlier, the powerful signs the world confronts us with will undoubtedly compel people to seek the Spirit again. To ensure success, though, a certain core number of people must undertake the spiritual striving that is the only right and true way for our time. As you know, our earth has already completed several tasks. Like each of us, the earth as a whole also has its task to fulfill. For example, in the epoch following the great Atlantean catastrophe, the Indian culture had a certain task to accomplish, and in a later epoch the Persian culture had a different task. Likewise, people dominated by the Egyptian and Chaldean cultures had a different task than those under Greek and Roman rule, a dominion that lasted until well into the 15th century. We are part of the epoch that began in the 15th century, and our task, in turn, is different from all the preceding ones. It will not be finished until the fourth millennium, and to describe this task we must point to the essential and fundamental events taking place on earth during this time. If we study the time before the 15th century from the perspective of spiritual science, we'll find that up to that time everything people did was permeated by a certain spirituality. The external discipline of history does not tell us anything about that, for it is ultimately only a fabrication we've been taught in school and college. A true and close study of those times reveals that people's everyday life was infused with a certain spirituality. The decline of that spirituality since then is one of the typical characteristics of our time. Indeed, that spirituality will gradually vanish completely unless we add new spiritual impulses to our purely external material culture. In other words, the outer conditions have forced our Earth's development to become purely materialistic. And while in earlier epochs the Spirit was simply there by itself, now it is up to humanity to join the Spirit to what we find in the world and to do so in a free inner deed. If we disregard for now what we can bring into earthly culture out of our own inner freedom and consciousness, and instead focus only on what unfolds on its own in our epoch, which began in the 15th century and is the fifth one, we'll see that in this epoch the earth is beginning to die, to pass away, as far as the cosmos, the whole universe, is concerned. In other words, the fifth epoch is the beginning of earth's dying. In all preceding epochs, the earth could contribute something out of itself to the spirit of the universe described above. In contrast, the brilliant culture that developed in our epoch, in the fifth epoch, such as the telegraph, telephone, and railroad, while highly significant for the earth, has no meaning for the universe beyond our earth. 
For example, none of the creations and discoveries of ancient Egypt and ancient Greece will perish with the earth. However, everything that has developed in our epoch, on the basis of our purely materialistic culture, will pass away when the earth itself dies and becomes a world corpse. Everything our current materialistic culture has created and will still create will perish when the earth dies. This may sound sad, but our epoch had to come inevitably, for we are meant to be free. That is, we have to be free to seek the spirit out of our inner consciousness rather than be compelled to seek it, and therefore the current epoch had to come, in which all the outer things that we're so proud of really exist only for the earth but not for the spiritual world. Thus, our epoch has set us free to move toward the spirit and in the process directs us to our inner life, our soul and heart. This epoch does not force us to become more spiritual but leaves us free to choose either to seek the spirit or to degenerate and be doomed together with the outer material culture. You can find this insight, which is truly essential for humanity, through spiritual science. Indeed, everything in our literature gives you clues and evidence for arriving at what I've just summarized. Alternatively, after the proper preparation through spiritual science, you can see these things spelled out in the powerful signs of the times all around us, signs that are unfortunately still all too often ignored. For example, if you've studied human development in the last few decades, you'll have found, strangely enough, that there has been lively spiritual striving and activity and a widespread agreement that things must change in the area we usually call socialist, namely in the world of workers, in the labor movement. That is where most of the recent efforts for spiritual renewal and the search for ideals for the future can be found. This movement pursues the right ideals, albeit purely materialistic ones, ideals that keep asking how the world must be transformed, how something new can arise. Our spiritual movement is still very small, and really only a small band of seekers, a crotchety, half-crazy bunch, as people often say, and thus is not part of our culture's inquiries into spiritual strivings. But if we look in other areas besides socialism for spiritual efforts, if we look at learned and clever people who have a good grasp of the ideas of our time, we find a vast spiritual wasteland. For example, theologians have engaged in the most peculiar debates, arguing about whether Christ Jesus ever lived whether he was an extraterrestrial being or whether he really was just a, quote, simple man of Nazareth, close quote. Aside from such discussions, what we find in the epoch when people have supposedly freed themselves of their, quote, blind faith in authority, close quote, and have adopted the principle, quote, investigate everything and keep only the best, close quote, in all their decisions, is nothing other than blind faith 
in the alleged demands of science. What we find everywhere these days is blind faith in every scientific discipline, from history to medicine. One reason for this is that it's too much trouble for most people to learn much about what makes us healthy or sick, and so they leave it to the authorities or experts in the field. That's the most egregious blind faith in authority. In other words, for the sake of convenience, people cling to the scraps that have salva- they have salvaged from the past rather than making any effort based on the realization that a spiritual renewal of humanity is absolutely essential. In contrast, from the perspective of spiritual science, we can see a new spirit being heralded in Eastern Europe amidst the flames, so to speak, as a result of purely natural processes. Against the backdrop of the most ignominious external yoke of tyranny, the future is emerging in the minds of the Eastern European people, indeed even in the dull and lethargic ones. Interestingly, since the ninth century, the bulk of Europe has been pushing eastward all those things that should have been preserved and protected against erosion by the West. Later, those things then appeared in the outward form of the Russian Empire throughout several centuries, centuries, a form that preserved the old and prepared the new future culture, much like a chrysalis prepares for its emergence while still encased in its shell. In a sense, the mystery cults have survived among the Russian people. They still live with ideas of mystery and have understood very little of the abstract religious concepts so cherished in the West. Instead, the Russian people sense deep within themselves much of the cult forms and images that can lead humanity to the divine. People in Eastern Europe feel in their own soul what gives the Western religious ruler his name of Pontifex, a word that means maker or builder of bridges. That is, he is the bridge to the spiritual realm. In other words, in Eastern Europe, people have preserved as much of the old as necessary to keep the bridge to the spirit clear of the new materialism, to keep it open. Looking at the signs of our times, in connection with what I've just explained, you can't fail to see the irony, the bitter irony of human development that has been poured out over Eastern Europe in particular. Bitter irony indeed. What has spread over the region's people like a badly fitting garment is nothing but a caricature of humanity's highest and most noble strivings. That is what Leninism and Trotskyism essentially are. In the final analysis, they are merely the ultimate exaggerated consequence and expression of the purely materialistic socialist ideas. Never before has there been such a clash of opposites as we see in the collision of the Eastern European soul and the inhumane Trotskyism or Leninism. I am not saying this because I am for or against this or that, but because it is an insight showing us what terrible things are brewing in Eastern Europe 
as a result of the fusion of the greatest opposites that have ever merged. This insight also teaches us about the meaning of the signs of the times. It tells us that we must be serious about spiritual science and use it as a way to enter into reality. Indeed, spiritual science is, first and foremost, a way for us to engage with the reality of our times. Now, Rabindranath Tagore has given a peculiar talk to a Japanese audience about the spirit of Japan. Tagore, of course, speaks as a man from the Orient, but nowadays Europeans can easily understand people from the Orient if they want to. If we listen closely to what Tagore said about the spirit of Japan and wanted to tell the whole world, we find that like all people of the Orient with any understanding, Tagore knows that the Eastern peoples have preserved an ancient spiritual culture. Though the wise men of the Orient have long kept this spiritual culture secret and have not shared it with ordinary people, it has, nevertheless, been incorporated into their social institutions up to the present day. This culture, though spiritual to the core, has now come to the end of its time. That is why what we encounter practically all over the Asian Orient is so strangely unnatural. People there adopt Western ways of thinking, Western culture, and add it to their ancient spiritual ways. This can only lead to dire results because spiritual thinking, especially that developed by the Japanese, immerses itself in reality. And if it unites with Euro-American materialism, it will outstrip this European materialism if the latter does not become spiritualized. For Europeans have not developed the spiritual mobility that the Japanese still have as a legacy of their ancient spirituality. Miraculously, we might say, the Russian folk soul has been spared everything leading to darkness and decadence, and Leninism and Trotskyism are now threatening to contaminate it, to infect that folk soul with the very thing that would completely eliminate the spirit from all earthly culture if it ever came to power. Obviously that must not happen, but to prevent it and achieve spiritual victory requires that we make up our minds to no longer treat spiritual science as just another abstract theory. Spiritual science is not a convenient method for developing a certain inner delight and mystical dreaminess in our soul. It's not about making us feel good by pretending we have nothing to do with the world and can safely retreat into a spiritual beyond. Such self-satisfied disdain for the perfidious world out there is nothing but crass egotism decked out in a noble costume. We should stay away from this kind of mysticism and theosophy and instead focus only on a spiritual understanding of life, one that really comprehends and experiences the spirit and immerses itself in the world by way of this spirit.
We must realize that what is involved here is a serious task for our time, albeit perhaps an unsettling and inconvenient one. It is to save people from being unsettled that certain brotherhoods have kept inconvenient truths secret from the masses. However, the time for secrets is over now. The time has come now for people to freely seek the Spirit out of their inner consciousness. What has been kept secret for thousands of years must now be imparted to all people. In other words, the spiritual wisdom that existed in ancient epochs in the Orient is now superseded and must be replaced by a different spiritual wisdom. Many people want to deny this, as we can see from the great number of so-called teachers who wanted to make things easy for us Europeans, to show us the easy answer to our quest for the Spirit. Our spiritual science seems to them much too difficult because it calls for thinking, and thinking is so inconvenient after all. Spiritual science also demands that we are spiritually awake, and being awake is so much trouble after all. Accordingly, so-called teachers have appeared to spare us Europeans all this inconvenience and the trouble of finding our own way to the Spirit. Instead, they have brought us all sorts of Oriental wisdom, Zarathustrian wisdom, and much else besides. As you can imagine, Europeans for the most part were very comfortable when they didn't have to find the Spirit on their own, but could have it brought in, ready-made, from ancient India. What they received worked much like a narcotic. It was a way to avoid having to seek the Spirit, and ultimately by way of the Spirit, the cosmos. People wanted to numb themselves and used an ancient model of knowledge for that purpose. That was one mistake people made where the East is concerned. A second mistake was also made, namely in connection with the fact that in our modern times the earth is, in a sense, dying in its culture, and this makes it necessary for us, even though we're not conscious of it, to seek our own inner life. And indeed we have this urge to find our own inner life, no doubt about it. In fact, more and more people are very eager to find their own inner life, and this seeking often appears disguised as worshipping God, in which we ultimately either worship our angels or ourselves. And yet, people will more and more urgently and intensely seek their inner life. In fact, the more the natural sciences and technology take hold of our time, the more strongly and passionately will we feel the urge to find our inner life. As it happens, people often go astray in their search these days, and it is often the ones in official positions charged with seeking the Spirit who pursue the search the least. Instead, they're looking for the quote-unquote limits of knowledge. They are busy finding out what we cannot know about the spiritual world. In other words, these days our spiritual leaders are the ones telling us how not to advance to the spiritual world and their followers are seeking but have no clear awareness of their search. 
That is one of the most striking characteristics of our epoch. In contrast, as a deeper understanding of the human soul will show, all over the world lay persons fully engaged in the struggles and hardships of their life are seeking the soul. Our leaders should instruct us from their pulpits and lecterns how to satisfy our seeking, but instead they claim that science forbids us to go beyond the limits of human knowledge, and thus we cannot penetrate into the spiritual world. According to these luminaries, Kant told us once and for all what the limits of human knowledge are, and those who refuse to accept this are clearly fools. Indeed, this is one of the most striking features of our time. Nevertheless, very many people, though they are not aware of it, have the urge to find their inner life, and in the long run this urge will not allow them to be satisfied with limits of knowledge but impel them beyond those limits. Thus we have not only the old, worn-out culture from the East to numb and distract ourselves, but the Far West is also sending us a means to numb and stupefy us. Indeed, Anglo-Americanism is a modern cultural narcotic to anesthetize our urge to find the spirit within us. It is the task of Anglo-American culture to organize the material realm and spread it over the whole globe, but due to an inherent idiosyncrasy, it also numbs and distracts people in their search for the spirit with its Americanisms. This means that the more we, Europeans, adopt the Oriental wisdom, the more we will be anesthetized in regard to spiritual knowledge of the world. Conversely, the more Americanized we become, the more we will be distracted and numbed in our search for the true spirit, for the true capital I inside us. This is not meant as a chauvinistic harangue or a tirade about this or that world mission. Rather, we must realize this, even if only in a small way, so that we can understand our special responsibility as central Europeans. For since the age of spiritual deepening, the age of Lessing, Herder, Goethe, and Schiller, which I described in my book titled The Mystery of Man, as the forgotten echo of German intellectual and spiritual life, the Central European spirit has been called upon to help humanity overcome these two anesthetics, Orientalism and Americanism. Spiritual science can help us realize the earth's spiritual situation and the demands placed on our soul, and without it people are not likely to know what spiritual impulses Central Europe can contribute to the world. Ultimately we need to ask ourselves whether we have proven ourselves worthy of the spiritual seeking that was started by Herder and Goethe, among others. My dear friends, Spiritual science rightly recommends meditation for us, and a wonderful meditation that could already be done with young children is to read Herder's description of every sunrise as a new creation in the grand context of the world, and read Herder's powerful imagery in his title Ideas on the Philosophy of Human History. Alas, all this has been forgotten. Incredibly, a few days ago, 
a gentleman with a deep and serious interest in the intellectual life of Europe, told me he'd never heard that Herder wrote about any of this. Indeed, we've been given a task, and we must realize its full extent. For example, when you hear lectures by people like Ku Hong Ming from China or Tagore from India, you shouldn't expect that they really understand the Central European spiritual impulses. They may know that Goethe lived, that a Goethe society has been established in cult to cultivate and preserve Goetheanism, but they'll ask, so what? What else has been done? In recent years, the Goethe society has been looking for a director, someone to lead the society, but nobody even considered whether the right man for the position would be someone working in the spirit of Goetheanism, a man who can do something for spirituality as it must be understood now, a hundred years after Goethe. No, that's not what the society was looking for. Instead, a man was hired who used to be sec treasure secretary, excuse me, who used to be treasury secretary. So now we have a former treasury secretary as administrator of Goetheanism. He's the one who was chosen to represent Goethean spirituality. As you can see, it is not enough to talk about spirit, spirit, and still more spirit. Rather, what matters is to penetrate reality with the insights based on our spiritual understanding. We must integrate this understanding into reality. A special task has been given to us Central Europeans, and the time to fulfill it has now come. The spiritual science we're talking about here is the continuation of what began at the turn of modern cultural and intellectual life, as I've just pointed out. In truth, the purely materialistic, socialist movement should have had a spiritual counterpart instead of being left to rule the field by itself for decades. While it's never too late, we must not lose any time realizing these things so that our special task does not go unfulfilled. That is, we must realize that catchphrases and slogans will not get us anywhere. What is called for is a new spirit among all people. Unfortunately, people nowadays miss or even avoid the spirit, as numerous examples prove. We could cite thousands of such examples, but we'll look at only one of them. Recently, a rather strange essay by a very learned man was published in a widely read German newspaper, and in this essay the writer lambasted a book that had the misfortune to have appeared in a series entitled Of Nature and the World of the Spirit. That writer railed terribly against this little book, but the essay did not explain why he was so upset. The book deals with the development of astrology and of horoscopes, albeit in the tone of an ordinary well-behaved university professor who will, of course, not be party to the superstition of astrology. The author ends by presenting his opinion and using Goethe's horoscope as an example. In fact, he makes fun of the topic and claims that all kinds of things could be found in that horoscope. So much for what an upright university professor of our time has to say on this subject. In fact, it's not possible to find a more upright and well-behaved university professor than the author of that book. And yet Fritz Mautner 
ranted and raved about that book and claimed it was spreading superstition. So there's Fritz Mautner inveighing against that book without even knowing why. A few days later, the author of the book published a correction in which he explains that he fully agrees with Fritz Mautner and appreciates that Mautner makes fun of astrology and horoscopes, something he himself had also done in his book. According to that published correction, he had referred to Goethe's horoscope only to show that one can read anything into it one wants. In other words, the author of the book and Mautner were in total agreement. The Berlin Daily News, where Mautner used to be theater critic, had nothing to say in reply because it did not believe that Mautner had misunderstood anything and Mautner himself also has no words of explanation. In short, here, two people who were in total agreement collided angrily and neither knew why. There was no apparent reason for this clash. That's not unusual in our time, unfortunately, but rather typical. People don't listen anymore to what they are saying to each other, and indeed they have less and less to say to each other. But the feelings they develop, their clashes, derive ultimately not from what they say to each other. Rather, people are now living completely in an unfathomable, irrational element because they have become so estranged from reality they can't find their way into it. When you think this through deeply and let yourself feel what this means, there will no longer be any doubt in your soul about the importance of spiritual science. Those who believe spiritual science is unpractical are on the wrong track entirely. The fact is that in fifty years we will build no factories and start no ventures of any kind without applying spiritual science to everything, for it alone will find the way to reality. Once we realize that all old familiar slogans lead us to a dead end, that our outer material life must be accompanied by insight into the spirit that rules the world, the new outlook will be able to really understand spiritual science. That realization will keep us from wanting egotistically to cross via the single bridge of death, in quotes, into the spiritual world. Instead, we will then learn to rest life even from death. As we seriously study spiritual science, we may be permitted to speak about these things in an intimate circle of friends such as this. For example, I have been writing about Goethe for more than thirty years now, not in an external, philological, philosophical or otherwise learned way, but always with the intention to express in my books what Goethe would want to say to us now regarding a subject that is dear to my heart. That is, I was not interested in studying the dead Goethe. Rather, I wanted to find a way to the living Goethe on the basis of his legacy. My work has been about finding the living Goethe who speaks to our souls when we know that the dead are just as alive as we are, that they live in the same world as we do. The only difference is that we are still in our body while the dead are among us in spirit. We have to wonder whether the religious communities allow for the dead and us to truly live together. 
while egotistical faith in immortality can be found everywhere, and we don't want to knock it here, without spiritual science the life of the dead cannot bear fruit. It is only through spiritual science that people will find the way to the souls they had a karmic connection to and who have crossed over into the other world, while yet remaining bound to this world with thousands and thousands of threads connecting us. For it is not only our impulses, the impulses of the living, that are at work in what happens here on earth. We do not stop working for this world once we have passed through the portal of death. As we've seen, even during our waking hours, we are only partially awake, namely in our perception and thinking. In contrast, in our feelings, we are in a dreamlike state. Feelings live in our awareness much like dreams do. Where our will is concerned, we're actually fast asleep. We can know our thoughts and remember our dreams, but in our ordinary consciousness we don't even know how the will works when we move our arms. In feeling we're only dreaming, and in willing we're deeply asleep. Basically we are feeling and willing beings surrounded by a world of the spirit we cannot access with our ordinary consciousness. Perception and thinking have separated us from that world. <clears throat> By virtue of being what we are, that is, beings who perceive and think and enjoy the physical world, we are not aware of the dead walking among us. In truth, the dead are everywhere among us. After developing in our life here, we pass through the portal of death. However, even then, we remain connected with life on earth. Many bonds, like fine yet strong threads, keep us linked to and involved in life on earth. In fact, there is no feeling or willing without the involvement of the dead with whom we have a karmic connection. Spiritual science allows us to realize this, to see the dead not as lo lives lost to us on earth, not as having vanished into nothingness, but rather as living on and working in our life here on earth. This realization is also the foundation of the spiritual orientation of the peoples in the East. In contrast, the peoples of Central Europe have the task of drawing forth from the human soul everything we can consciously create out of the freedom of our soul, a task that will last into the fourth millennium. To perform this task we must permeate the outer material world with the spiritual. At the same time, we must take care not to let the world sink into Wilsonism, which is the opposite of spirituality of any kind. In the East, where Trotskyism and Leninism have been grafted onto the emerging spirituality, clashing and grating against it, the new spiritual culture being prepared must be set free. That culture is called upon to ask the vital question about everything that happens on earth. What? are the dead saying about this? Now more than ever, it is essential for us to realize that this is where we're headed in our earthly development. However, these days, people think they are so smart and are already smart enough at twenty to run for parliamentary elections. After all, nowadays everyone already has a firm standpoint by age twenty and feels like a full-fledged person.
what we need to understand deeply is that it's not for nothing that we're given the years between age twenty and the day we die. On the contrary, we continue to learn and develop and to discover something new all the time. And even after we pass through the portal of death, learning and life continue. It's essential that we fully realize this. Thus, in the future, people will know that the wisest persons to ask for advice about what should be done here on earth are the dead. Our consciousness so you can read what this you can read what that is in my book titled Theosophy is being formed by our present time. Our spiritual self will be developed by the culture of the future. In fact, our spirit self develops as the dead become the advisors of the living. People still consider this a fantastic dream or a sort of madness, but it will, nevertheless, become reality. A time will come, indeed is coming, when people who have joined together here on earth to accomplish a goal of significance for earthly development will not only consult the living, but also the dead. We cannot yet go into detail about what specific form this will take and how it will be incorporated into our political structures and institutions. At this point all of that must still remain a mystery. However, we can already immerse ourselves in the realization that this living consciousness must develop, that we are always in the company of the dead that instead of an egotistical aspiration to immortality, we should create within us a living striving that is then expressed in our actions. In conclusion, I wanted to, us today to reflect on how spiritual science integrates the aspirations of each individual person into the overall striving of the earth. I thought this topic was especially appropriate for our gathering here with friends who are seeking the answers to life's questions in spiritual science. What we're talking about here is not a matter of meeting the paltry needs of our soul. Rather, cultivating spiritual science is a matter of the earth's cultures, of the earth culture's destiny. Becoming aware of this will not make us arrogant or conceited. We can be humble, but we must develop this awareness because it is essential now that there are people who fully understand the seriousness of human striving on earth. If you immerse yourself in spiritual science, as I've indicated here today, you'll find that even a small branch of our society, such as this one, can make a contribution to the human development that is necessary if the earth is to advance toward its ultimate goal. The end of Lecture 4